Nation Reaching Nations is focused on highlighting innovative stories from cross-cultural, local, and global missions, missions from the majority world, and culturally contextual teaching. The missionary stories and idea of this podcast are based on connecting through Houston and serve as an example of how the gospel is spreading from everywhere to everywhere. Our hope is that the stories that you hear on this podcast will help equip you to reach those around you. Hey everyone, welcome back to Nations Reaching Nations. I am Brian. I have with me in the studio today Tony Calori. He is a friend of mine here at the church. Uh, he's taught in a number of our classes on global theology, animism, urban missions, uh, and just different topics like this. Uh, one of the th- he's from uh, India, from the southern part of India, and he works here in Houston as a systems controls engineer. Did I get that right? Control systems engineer. Control systems engineer. Okay. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Tony. Well, thanks for having me. You know, it's interesting. Tony has actually uh, surreptitiously made it onto the show uh, a number on, on, on a number of occasions through various uh, stories, <laughs> and uh, we use Marco Polo a lot just to chat back and forth during the week. And uh, he he might have mentioned this to me in a humorous way that he is. That I've been bringing him in, and so I decided just to to bring him in. Well, I was able to connect with a bunch of references, so that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, we have two different numbers as to how many times he's been uh, referenced on here. But <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so Tony, um, you know, as as you and I were chatting in, in preparation for this, I mistakenly called you a one point five generation immigrant here, and. So just for the listeners, you know, one of the distinctives of, of a 1.5 generation person is that typically their parents immigrated here first and then they immigrated very early as a child. And because of this, they are very able to live between two worlds. And as I was saying this, it dawned on me, you're not actually a 1.5 generation. I was kind of giving you that credit because I see you operating uh, in in two very distinct worlds. So you're technically a first generation immigrant here. Uh, you came here during college. So how how have you uh, been able to, uh, I guess, increase your awareness, acquisition, et cetera, of uh, American culture, understanding all of these different things to the point where I would I would just automatically assume that you're 1.5? Well, that's uh, probably a good thing that I give that vibe. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think that's good. Yeah. Um, well, I came for grad school. I came to University of Houston for to, to do my graduate studies here. Um, but prior to that, I think um, you know I generally was fascinated with America even when I was you know going uh, doing my studies in college in India. Um, I really liked English because of my mom, who was an English teacher. Um, you know, um, you know, read a lot. You know, it was kind of like a um, you know, enthusiast for general English language as such. Um, but, you know, my real immersion into the culture, I would say, or transformation that has, you know, happened was during my grad school, where um, in my, you know, couple of semesters into the program, I became a graduate teaching fellow. And that 
you know, uh, pushed me into teaching classes to undergrad students. And um, during that time of one, one and a half year, I was, you know, interacting with American students predominantly in my classes, undergrads, you know, and um, dealing with them, teaching them and all kinds of things. So I was just basically hanging out with them during my whole week. And, you know, a, a year of that process, um, my friends started telling me that my English has changed. <laughs> my accent is kind of, you know, not that Indian anymore. So I kind of re- st- you know, started receiving those kinds of comments that, you know, you're, you're changing, you know, you're, you're, you're thinking. But actually, I myself have noticed a year into being a graduate student and, you know, teaching fellow was that I have started thinking in English. Like, mm. my mind has shifted. Do you dream in English? Now, yes. Ah. <laughs> now, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's a question I love asking people who speak yeah. multiple languages. What language do you dream in? Yeah, so uh, I feel like my mind is very flexible at the moment. So if I hang out with Indian, my, my folks during the weekend or something, my mind switches to that language and I, I'm thinking in that language too for the most part. But if I switch to English, I'm in that zone also. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if, if people like me come across in my day-to-day life, that is people who are, you know, who, lo- who know Telugu or who know English and we mix up the language <laughs> in our normal conversations. So sometimes I'm doing both, yeah. but um, it switches. Yeah, so th- that actually seems to be a fairly common Indian thing, and this is one of the stories that you called me on yeah. uh, 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 citing you. So Tony and I were planning a trip together to uh, Chennai, and there's an Indian movie called Chennai Express. That yeah. He said, oh, you should watch this. It, it goes through the, the area, and so we watched as a family. My, my kids can sing the Chennai Express song, by the way. Oh, they, wow. they did it for a week on end. <laughs> it was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but they mix a lot of English. Uh, th- there's a TED Talk on the the – the Problem of a Single Story, I think is what it's called. Okay. Fantastic TED Talk. And she's talking about, she's, she's Nigerian, and she's talking about, you know, what is the one story we know about people? And then how much more to them is there in reality? So if you think, oh, so-and-so is a poor kid, mm-hmm. you don't think of him as maybe being smart or into literature, or in, you just think of his poverty. Okay. And I yeah. think when people think of other countries, it's the same thing. They think, oh, what is India? Uh-huh. And whatever they've seen in National Geographic or heard from, yeah. that is the story. And then when the the more Indians that I get to know personally or the, the more I learn about India, mm-hmm. it just seems like there's no one story, uh, one narrative that captures what is India. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, India is a huge country and uh, huge in terms of geography. But, you know, it's not as big as uh, America. It's about the third of the size of America, geographically speaking. But what makes India unique is that it's its, its own continent in a way because right. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mixture of a lot of cultures. And, you know, uh, rightly said, you know, it's a subcontinent, right? So because of that, we have lots of languages and, you know, lots of different things happening in different parts of India. So southern India is very different from northern India. Western India is different from eastern India. Mm-hmm. But we are all united as one entity, this right. nation of India. But we share a lot of things in common. But we also differ in many different ways. So, yeah. so let's talk about your let's talk about your Indian side. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I guess we'll have to talk about sides here. Um, so you still understand? I mean, I, I know you've uh, gone back to India 
multiple times for different reasons. Um, some of those to do some some teaching opportunities and what. But your family also has a very deep past with early missionaries there. Tell us a little bit about uh, their connection to some of the early missionaries there. Yeah, so I grew up in a, a family that went to a Baptist church, local Baptist church in, in Andhra Pradesh. So we speak Telugu there. In that part of India, we speak Telugu. Um, so uh, my family um, became Christian in the late 1800s, right? So they became Christian because of the Baptist missionary work that happened in that region. And it's uh, my, my surname, you know, Kaluris have been Christian for five generations now. So, the, you know, they were one of the earliest converts in that region. So, you know, we, we have a you know, strong heritage of Christians. And interestingly and surprisingly, my dad still goes to the same church where his great-great-grandfather went wow. to the church, right? So he goes to the same church. And so the, our, our ties to that church are, you know, very strong. That's where, you know, we come from, you know. So, um, yeah, so we have, we have a strong line of Christians um, mm-hmm. in the family. Um, and, you know, the missionaries uh, that came to that region are uh, American Baptist missionary and uh, I've did I've done some research. Uh, they come from the American Baptist Missionary Organization that was in in the 1800s that was uh, operating out of Boston, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. in America here. And this is even prior to uh, the SBC. Right. We, this is when the country was uh, the North and South were together. Yeah, this would be the ABWE, right? Um, it, I think it's used. It used to be just the American Baptists. Okay, right. So the, it wasn't Latin. It wasn't like the American of the American Baptists remain American on the northern side, but the southerns right. call called themselves SBC later on. Yeah. So this is before that. This is this is prior to that, and I've done even further research of this organization. This organization came into being right after. William Carey founded his English Baptist Missionary Organization, okay. right? So they were, they were, they were very close ties at that time between England and America, wow. the, the English Baptists and the American Baptists. And um, so, you know, the, the story goes is that you know when Carey came to India into the the western part, uh, eastern part, I'm sorry, into Calcutta, he, you know, planted himself there you know, worked among the indigenous people, established an organization, and, you know, that he became the focal point of any other Baptist that wanted to come there. And so he scouted out the region where people could go. So the story goes is that he was pivotal in identifying our region where other Baptists could go. Mm-hmm. So that that's the line. So he was the first one Baptist or person there, and then Baptists spread out into into different parts of India to do further mission work. So So as people immigrate here to the States and as the generations, there are further generations of immigration, right? So there's there's children and then children's children. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they become more Americanized over time. And yet you're here on the front side of this. And one of the things that I've learned about Eastern uh, family structure is that there's a high sense of family obligation. This looks different uh, in the Middle East versus, you know, South Asia versus East Asia. But but the the commonality is that there's always a sense of family obligation and family connection and mm-hmm. uh, much less in the, I can't say much less individualized, not individualized at all. Uh, so it would seem. So what are the, you know, 
you being so close in terms of still connected to India, what are the the points uh, that you feel this obligation, family obligation pressing on you or cultural obligations pressing on you? Yeah, so I <laughs> sometimes I feel I don't have any obligations <laughs> because I'm too far and they can't tell me anything. <laughs> and sometimes, <Okay. laughs> sometimes I feel a lot of obligation. So it depends on the season, right? Uh, but <laughs> I, I do have a lot of strong ties. You know, my dad, my dad is still there in India, and every other um, uncle and aunt. You know, my my dad's out of the family. Um, are there in India? And you know, my cousins are all there. You know, only few cousins are here mm-hmm. in in the states or in the UK. But you know, I would say eighty percent of the family is there. So I do have strong ties. And I, um, you know, you would be surprised, maybe, but you may not be surprised too that when I was leaving to come to grad school here, one of my grandpas. He's not my own grandpa, but he's a cousin of mm-hmm. my dad's side. He's an older gentleman. He said that, don't forget that you're a Kaluri wherever you go. Right. <laughs> so that's the thing, right? I'm carrying carry this, this, burden. this burden or the honor of having this last name. So Right. <laughs> yeah, so that's what he told me. So, yeah. Yeah, so that kind of probably tells the story of, you know, <laughs> Uh, the the strong ties of family and uh, whatever the last name the weight of the last name carries <laughs> yeah yeah so you're 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 skating around a particular issue and I know you're doing it so I'm just gonna have to call you out on it okay uh, tell me tell me what does like the norm for Indian I can't say dating but the the courtship process for for Indians what is that what is the standard for that the standard I would say is uh, pretty much in that uh, format of arranged marriage. Like, you know, you probably have seen different versions of arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, there are different cultures that do arranged marriage differently, I guess. But, you know, Indians have a particular way of doing arranged marriage. And then we are Christian among Indian culture, right? So right. we have a Christian version of an arranged marriage as well. So it is still an arranged marriage, but you know it's it's it it I feel it has a lot more freedom compared to a traditional uh, Indian arranged marriage. Okay. So, yeah, and so I guess coming from a Christian Indian family, obviously there's concerns. Uh, you know, India is super diverse religiously; it's home to every major religion. It's the birthplace of several of them: mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikh, Jain. Uh, just those right off the top of my head. Um, so obviously there's a, there's a concern of, you know, not just any Indian girl in that scenario would do, I suppose. Um, so what is the, what is the arranged marriage process look like? The the short version, the short version, uh, (laughs) the short version, uh, okay. I would say that the short version of an Indian arranged marriage would look like, um, as follows. Step one is the, the families would try to search for bride or the groom, right? So there are typically the, the these things called marriage bureaus, okay? Okay. So back in the day, there used to be these people whose whole sole job was to, you know, uh, link up families for marriages, okay? So there, there used to be these people, and th- that was their, you know, sole profession, livelihood. But now, you know, we have these marriage bureaus, which are basically... Uh, run by you know a few people, and they collect these profiles, 
And so if if my dad was interested about me, he would, you know, give my profile to these guys and they would they would match you up, uh, match me up with some of the profile that they have in their database. Uh, not database, but, you know, a list of things. Um, and they would suggest those f- profiles and their families to my dad, my parents. So so the step two is the parents would look at these profiles and see if they uh, match up or they you know, they see if they fit their preferences. Mm-hmm. And the parents would talk. And if they, you know, are okay with that, they would allow the children to talk or see in person um, step, yeah, step three would be uh, one of the families would come to the other's family with the bride or the groom. Typically, it's the groom that's going to the bride's house. That's the norm. So they would go and meet in person, and uh, and then the parents would allow the the children to talk the potential uh, bride and groom, and then they would be uh, asked the question: Would you like to move forward with the marriage? So this talking period could be couple of times of talking. Uh, okay. This t- talking time could be, uh, you know, a few weeks of talking. Okay. So. Fairly fast. Could be very short, you know, maybe a week or two mm-hmm. to a couple months. Yeah. Okay. And then once you once you feel comfortable with, with the guy, you you are given the option. That's the Christian version. Like, you know, we, right. you know, Christians do, um, you know, allow their children to make the decision eventually. But it comes through the filter and the overseeing of the families. Yeah. yeah. So this is a very structured process. Right? Uh-huh. There's there's just very clear, agreed upon, understood. Here's what happens at this point, at this point, at this point. Here's the purpose. Mm-hmm. Here's the intent. Um, you know, when I lived overseas, it drove my friends crazy uh, because I'm aware enough of American culture to know that I am simply one subset of American culture and we're so individualistic here, there's no real one American culture. Mm-hmm. Um per se. And so they would ask me a question like when a, when a man in America takes a woman out on a date, who pays? And I said, well, you know, traditionally it's the man, mm-hmm. but now they might split it or, you know, might even be the woman. Like anything, anything goes, which is sort of what my, all of my answers to them would come down to. And this frustrated them because <laughs> they go, well, what do Americans do for this? And I said, well, do you mean, do you mean white Americans? Uh, you know, black Americans, right. Latino Americans, you know, do you mean Americans in the South and the North and the East and the West? And yeah. so um, one of the things I loved about Middle Eastern culture was there were rules. Mm-hmm. And every and once you learn the rules, it was so simple to understand life. And I think Indian culture shares some of this. Yeah. So you've come from this highly structured culture and now here you are in the States. Yeah. Um, so tell me about American dating. <laughs> there's no structure <laughs> there's no and there's structure. no guidance. <laughs> and uh, you have to do, well, I feel like, you know, I've, I've had my own taste of dating Americans. So I'll just say that all the work that my, the marriage bureau guy is supposed to do, my dad and my family is supposed to do, and I myself have to do in my Indian process is, the, is, is you know, forced on me, basically. It's my mm-hmm. job to do the filtering, my job to <laughs> screen them out, and it's my job to figure things out. So it's very much on me to figure these things out. So that's like from a, from the, from a format standpoint. Right. Uh, that makes, makes it very difficult for me because I th- do not really 
think in those terms because I'm not on that aspect. I'm not <laughs> quite conditioned yet. I would think <laughs> to the American <laughs> side of things, so that is still a struggle. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're not alone in this. All of my single friends tell me how hard dating is here, even the ones who are who are from here. So, you're, <laughs> okay. ironically, you're not alone. Yeah, even though you are alone. Um, so. In, it sounds like in Indian marriage, the, the preference is actually for family involvement. Uh, and I think here, mm-hmm. that's viewed as a negative. The idea that someone's parents would be involved in a, a relationship decision mm-hmm. of a child, yeah. I think here strikes against everything that is American. You know, freedom, independence, liberty, individualism, etc. And, and also the romantic ideals. Yes. Right. So that, that, that's another thing. I agree with everything. Uh, but I also say that there is this romantic ideal that I have seen, like I've, you know, from. So the, define that for us. Well, the romantic ideal is that I have found my own wife or my own girlfriend mm-hmm. in this in this strange situation, but I found her and she is mine now. Yeah. That kind of thing, like anything in the movie, like you know, there's this girl, she's just at a coffee shop, and you know, they strike a conversation, and that's how the romance yeah. budded, right? That's your normal movie narrative, and that's that's kind of thought as an ideal, and if you don't do it that way, it's it's less than ideal. Right. Some Americans kind of cringe upon a- anybody introducing because it's not that romantic ideal. At least that's one one take of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, th- I think you're right. There, every every rom com out there is, yeah. you know, they bump into each other at a grocery store in the street or whatever, and it mm-hmm. happens. And it strangely it happens happened, randomly. and you know, the stars align perfectly, and then they met. You yeah. know, you, yeah. you mentioned the stars aligning, <laughs> and I hear people here talk about <laughs> that's I, an Indian thing, though. <laughs> yes, it is an Indian thing, exactly. Or Eastern thing, right? Like uh, they talk about finding their soulmate. That's Indian. Uh huh. They talk about the universe brought us together. Mm-hmm. That's in. I mean, all of our kind of romantic ideals uh-huh. in some way at least in the last 50 years have been tying the knot have been uh <laughs> somehow intermixed with very eastern ideas oh yeah for sure and and so that's that's really ironic <laughs> <laughs> yeah now that you say that that is true <laughs> but yeah i mean even things but uh, you know eastern religions i mean india included yeah. have their own you know mysticism around these things right like right. what's your sign that's a huge thing right that people uh-huh. ask here yeah um yeah and, and i mean now kids are using enneagram which all nobody wants to admit it but it has uh ties to mysticism and occult and what other kind of stuff Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but part of it is young people are using this as a well I'm this number therefore I need to be matched up with that number which when you get back down to the root level Mm -hmm. this is essentially kind of how Easterners use Zodiac or I remember you shared in one of the the online classes we did uh, you were talking about you know birth month and uh-huh. letters and the name and all of this kind of stuff that matchmakers would use. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, in certain um, s- certain traditions of uh, Hinduism, uh, the, 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 the process is that, you know, you know, for you to be, um, for you to be suitably matched with another groom because you were born in this particular month and a particular mm-hmm. date of this particular year, if your name starts this this letter, it would bring uh, good fortune to your future family. Okay. So they would change, typically they would change the name of the bride 
before marriage. So her marriage name is different. Yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, because of what uh, astrologers have, you know, suggest. Yeah. <laughs> so you're in between these two worlds, right? And, I, and I'm actually aware that there's another system out there where modern Western Indians have kind of adapted uh, inter- integrated uh, technology <laughs> with some traditional courtship uh, ethos as well. So what does that look like for the, the modern Western Indian? Yeah, so that looks like uh, what used to be this middleman who were full-time professionals of matchmaking. Uh, the middlemen have been replaced with a website. So there are these matrimonial websites okay. where you would create a profile for yourself and you put yourself out there and this, you know, you know, it's, it's like a dating website in a way. I, I feel the, the algorithms are just about the same that are running behind the scenes. So they, the profiles, um, you can search a lot of profiles if you have the time um, to search all of them. But, you know, the website kind of matches you up saying that, okay, these are your preferences. These, these potential uh, other profiles could be a good match for you. So... That's your uh, initial interest point, right? That's your step number one. You see other profiles and if you like them. But, you know, we are Indian, we'll, we'll st- <laughs> still <laughs> stick to the formula. Right. So typically, uh, it's I'm not talking to the girl. I'm talking to the girl's father or brother, typically. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, and then... Even I'll, though it's been done through, online. Through, through the website, yeah. Typically, like I would say at least... 70% of the time, it's not a girl that is putting herself out there. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it at least guys, my, you know, guys probably are a little um, um, allowed some freedom to put put themselves out there. But typically for, for girls, it's under parental guidance uh, that they would be allowed to do um, matrimonial websites and stuff. So, yeah, typically I would be talking to... The parents. So just for the sake of full disclosure for our listeners, I have a, a vested interest. I've been trying to uh, find someone for Tony. <laughs> He's shaking his head right now. But my vested interest is I hear there's thousands of rupees uh, involved in these exchanges. And so if, if you know, I'm just th- throwing this out there. If a marriage results from one of our listeners, I, I want my cut. Yeah, Brian has a cut <laughs> for for sure. If the you know, if um, if something happens along those lines, Brian definitely has a cut. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> so so let's 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 push on about um, kind of church and and culture. Um, so you really ha- you're, you're you're functional in two cultures essentially, um, and I find when people are functional in two cultures, they they develop pain points about both cultures. Mm-hmm. And there are things they really love about both cultures. And so probably nowhere is this more apparent in uh, than in church life, particularly for Christians, because a lot of our formative church years um, are, are in childhood. If you've grown up in a Christian home like both of us have. Mm-hmm. And so for me, my the church I grew up in was very, very traditional. And I have both pain points about that and a lot of nostalgia. And then when I go into any modern church, it never quite feels like home, even though I really don't want to go back to that church either. And so um, what are some of these, what, what are some of the oddities, we'll say, we're saying this in a polite way, but what are some of the oddities of Western church? Um, 
Well, I would say the first thing is um, just the way the church feels informal to me mm-hmm. uh, compared to the way I grew up. Church feels informal. So our, you know, you know, because we have been generations, you know, few generations in, into into Christianity, we have devel- developed our own traditions of how to interact with one another, uh, how men and women interact, how you interact with somebody that is older, that kind of thing. So, you know, the first thing that, that I had to get used to uh, here in, you know, in an American church is is how informal it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just growing up, uh, I would probably never call anybody by their first name who is older to me. Uh, you know, um, and we are typically um, separated. Men sit on one side of the church to, you know, to the, with respect to the women. So it's you that's know, common in Europe as well. Yeah, so th- we are separated. So we have a kind of sh- we we feel like we are showing respect that way, right? Mm-hmm. So that's how we 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 feel that you know we we give women their room, and we sh- we show respect that way. But you know, come here. It's it's not the, the not the case. Not that it's wrong or anything. Right, it's right, just, just a different different, different culture, uh, and then the informality of t- you know talking to people and calling somebody very older to you by their first name still cringes me today. <laughs> that I'm calling them by their first name, and you know even addressing some some older folk. Uh, with you, you know, you is a singular pronoun, whereas in Telugu we have a plural pronoun for showing respect. So that itself was was a thing, at least a small thing in my head to get used to. <laughs> well, Tony, you're in Texas. You're allowed to say y'all. We have a plur- we have a plural pronoun here too. <laughs> but for that sort of group of people, <laughs> so if they laugh at me if I start calling Brian y'all. <laughs> <laughs> So wait, 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 you would use the plural for an individual? Yes, to show oh, respect. Wow. Yeah. So the plural pronoun is reserved to for a group, so obviously, but it's, the plural pronoun is also reserved for somebody older. And if I'm showing respect in a conversation, no. I'm, I'm going to use that. So what you're saying is that India is way ahead of the West on pro- its pronoun game. Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> we, have, <laughs> we have a lot more variety there. <laughs> You know, I, I actually grew up the same way where we were taught, you know, you stand when an elderly person comes in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you let them speak first. You greet them by their last name or Mr. or Mrs. or some kind of title. Mm-hmm. And here uh, that's almost viewed um, or in more modern times, that's really viewed. People don't want their age to be a factor in how you, you view them. It's, it's a negative. We view it as a negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just kind of a cultural thing, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So what are some of the, I mean, I imagine when you go home, uh, now having lived here for so long, and a lot of your, your adult Christianity has been formed here. He's, uh, Sony's also a, a seminary student at Southern Seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of it's been formed here in the States. And you're right. We're very informal. Uh, we're also very, you know, Baptists inside of America are kind of low church versus like Episcopalians or Anglicans, which would be kind of high church. So we, we do have some formality on this mm-hmm. side of the pond, just not, yeah. not not with us. But when you go back home, what are some of the uh, kind of the pain points for you there? Um, I would, you know, I would start with, you know, just uh, the difference in culture as much as uh, we are Christian and, you know, we have adapted to 
some of the Western way of doing church. You know, it was founded by Americans. So we, our church structure, generally speaking, mm-hmm. the governing structures, all were inherited by, inherited, you know, through through Western understanding of, of a church and stuff like that. So, you know, there's nothing new there, I would think. Uh, the order of church service, you know, that is still formal and stuff. But the cultural ethos are still Indian. Mm. It, and it took me a while to understand that. And, uh, you know, we, our, our people, you know, uh, the, the reason why we, we um, you know, want to show respect or, you know, use a plural pronoun or anything of that nature is because the culture is a shame and honor culture. Mm-hmm. And that's why you show honor in, in these actions. And, you know, and it's very important. And it's, it's enforced in the families. It's even today... Uh, you know, the way we address certain things and, you know, the way we are, uh, address our grandpas is very different from, you know, anybody else, you know, that kind of thing. So because it's rooted in that shame and honor culture. And as much as we think that Christianity um, has kind of changed us, but that did not change. Right. That did not change at all. Uh, it, it's, it, it is an adaptation, I would say, uh, but it's still a shame and honor culture. And it took me a long time to understand that. It took me a long time to understand that when I came from India and learned a few few new things about Christianity. I was a Christian when I uh, came here. I was a Christian when I was 16 years old. So I had, you know, I had a relationship with the Lord. I grew up in in a Baptist church, so I was a Sunday school kid. You know, normal church going stuff. You know, as as a as a kid growing up in that church. But when I came here, um, I also grew. I was, you know, fairly young in in a sense of, you know, understanding God and scriptures and theology and stuff like that. But I've also kind of adapted into a kind of an individualistic mindset, which is, you know, individual freedom. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do my own thing. Um, You know, that kind of thing. I've adapted, you know, some sense of that. But when I went back to India, people were not really interested in that, <laughs> you know, and they would, you know, at, at one point, you know, you know, somebody or some older grand grandpa or some older person would say, remember, you're still a Kaluri type of oh. uh, statement, <laughs> yeah. you know, statement would be passed and like, and I would like, okay, why are they saying this? <laughs> I didn't do anything to offend you or anything, you know, but they are sensing an individual's tendency in me mm-hmm. for them that's not really important you belonging to this group is more important than your individual sense is what they were telling me right. through those statements yes because they were sensing those things and it took me a while to understand okay this is there's a, there has been a paradigm shift in me which uh, which is not bad in a sense but you know that's what they recognize it is noticeable yeah, yeah. It's interesting, their response to you, though, mm-hmm. is itself a, a difference in communication styles between the East and the West. Yeah. Whereas here in the West, we would just say it much more directly. Tony, you're being too much whatever. Mm-hmm. Whereas it sounds like they didn't really put their finger on the, the point of the issue. They more said this generic statement, which in a roundabout way, was it's indirect, right? It's supposed to convey the message and you're supposed to naturally somehow figure this out. Right, right. Uh, okay, <laughs> I, see, I see what they're saying. But I did not think that was an indir- indirect way of saying it. But no, I, didn't, I still don't think it's an indirect no? way. Okay. It is a direct way of saying, 
don't forget you belong to this right. this clan or this group of people but but what is being said is not the exact thing that's being communicated so okay. it might be very pointed uh-huh it might, might be very intentional okay yeah without necessarily just a statement i don't know Okay, I mean, I see, I see your point. I yeah. see your point. I mean, they're not directly pointing an issue in terms of your behavior, right? That's what you were going for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. something I brought up earlier was the, the problem of a single story. Mm-hmm. And growing for me growing up here, uh, being in very mission-minded churches, um, Southern Baptist, we have the International Mission Board. It's, I don't know if it's the largest, but it's one of the largest, uh, at least in this in this country. And they put out this map, which uh, I don't know what its official title is. We all call it the red dot map. And essentially it it maps out all of the unreached uh, or unengaged people groups throughout the world. And, of course, this is where terms like the 1040 window come from, which would, you know, if you look at this map, you can spot the 1040 window because Mm -hmm. across North Africa, the Middle East, uh, South Asia and East Asia, Mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. of the dots that are green or yellow in the United States and Europe turn to red uh, and orange, which are the the least reach colors. That's how they're representing it, is by color. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And as I've gotten to know you, to hear your story with the connection to uh, the early Baptist missionaries, and then last year you went home for Christmas and you bought a drone and mm-hmm. you flew your drone over your church. Yeah. And in my mind, India is unreached. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and granted, I'd, I've overcome this since knowing you, so I, I had overcome this a long time ago, but I'd never visually seen, you mentioned that your church was a mega church. And in my mind, the only church that I've heard about in India uh-huh. are tiny little persecuted house churches. Uh, and I'm, sh- I'm sure that is a reality. Uh-huh. Uh, I had just not heard of your experience before. My, our version of ch- mega churches? Yeah. yeah and, and so your church is quite large. In this in this drone footage, she flies over the church. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a lot of other cultures light things up at night, especially mm-hmm. during holidays. And so somebody had run, looks like a thousand strings of LED lights. That oh, for were, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That mm-hmm. were timed and colored mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, quite Yeah. It, it's quite a feat. Like, it's quite, yeah. quite a spectacle to watch. And they... They do that every Christmas, or they've been doing that uh, every Christmas, at least in the past 10 years, to light up the church building. So we enjoy that. Like, as people who go to that church, we really enjoy the way they decorate that church for Christmas. So, it, you know, it's our big, big thing of the year. And, um, you know, it's it's full-on festival mode, yeah. right? Um, the thing about um, my church is that, you know, it, it's, it's a, it, again, it's a 100-year-old church, 100-plus-year-old church. And because of that, you know, it has been around. Um, then the the congregants, the number of congregants in that church, is about I would say two thousand five hundred people regular attendance. So it could be you know three thousand people attending on a Christmas service on a on a Christmas day. Um, so it's it's a large church comparatively speaking. But I grew up in a region where Christianity is is present for a while, mm-hmm. and even though we are not anywhere close to a majority, the Christian presence in the region where I come from is huge, mm-hmm. right? So um, we have big church buildings. We have, um, you know, Christian organizations running hospitals, you know, colleges, you know, higher education institutions and mm-hmm. stuff. So the presence of Christianity is there in, in, the, in the part of India where I come from is, is huge. 
and uh, you know that region particularly uh, south india particularly uh, cannot be considered unreached or unengaged right right um but there are parts of it that is still you know still unreached in a way uh and then the demographic changes mm-hmm. you know as you move from one part of india to the other and that's also another factor is that you know we 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 sometimes hear the statistics and statistics are quite low but there are parts of india that are you know um not so not so unengaged in a way yeah yeah th- I, i think that's I, i think you're right um there's uh, from my understanding there's large uh national so by by indians uh church planting movements uh that are happening and there's you know pastor trainings that are going on and denominational structure i mean much much like you would see here mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. same time india there also is i mean there are a lot of unreached people groups whether it's you know hindu or muslim one of my favorite statistics about islam in india is that india has 10% of the world's muslims mm-hmm. but only 1 in 10 people in india are muslim and so that yeah. speaks to its its immense size uh global prominence yeah. and that muslims are still kind of a minority group it would seem <laughs> inside india somehow yeah um yeah. in spite of all of the numbers yeah i mean that's the that's the biggest challenge and staggering thing when you consider india is that it's it's a home of a billion people right so if you take the world population is as you know 7 billion or something you know one out of seven people are indian but you don't see them that much but that's right <laughs> that's the case um so yeah um so we've we've talked about your pain points with uh, each of the the churches east and west but what are some of the things that you've grown to appreciate um about each of them now um so there you know th- this mix of um in a individualistic aspect of western civilization which seems to be the you know uh, quite a unique feature of its own um which came out of a christian tradition right it just did not happen because actually bible talks about individuals individual conscience and mm-hmm. individual freedom personal liberty and all those things are christian ideas and western civilization really enshrines those those concepts so there's there's nothing wrong with those but um the the shame and honor side of things the family and keeping the name of the family um you know keeping the honor of the family that sort of thing are also deeply embedded in the bible Absolutely. right so the 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 tension may be there between these two ideas if you think they're polar opposites but in reality i would think that um they can be together and there is a there is room for individual emphasis and there is room for shame and honor mm-hmm. so as much as it feels like you know they're they're in friction together there i think there is there is room for um for both of them to be there and both of them are you know equally valid truths and both found in scripture so the beauty of that is that i i feel like in my own life i appreciate the collective why do why why is collective so important for for an indian um or anybody from an eastern background why is the collective so important and the fascinating question i would think is uh as much as we became christian uh our collective ideas did not quite go away 
we kind of assimilated Christianity into the collective idea. Mm-hmm. That means that the the Christian truth still holds true while, you know, not totally taking away the collective um, framework of, of, of that culture, right? So it still is adaptable in that sense. It still speaks to that culture, right? Mm-hmm. As much as it speaks to an Western individualistic right. culture. So that that's the beauty of it is that... Um, we are not eroding away one culture versus the other. There's no, you know, you know, pitting one one against the other. But there is a beauty in in both of those things. As much as we think that that is, um, you know, kind of an opposite or kind of a friction there, it, it's not. And you know, we have to be careful. Like you know, I have to be very cautious and uh, understanding where my dad is coming from, where one of these elders in the family is coming from, why these things are more important to them, because that's the framework they operate in. And if I, if I try to, at least, you know, in, in the best of my abilities, put myself in their shoes and see where they're coming from, okay, that, that makes sense for them. So how do I address that issue? Mm. Um, you know, just as much I, t- I, you know, talk to a young adult in my church ministry and see where, where he, he is coming from. He come. He's coming from this, this, this culture. And it, you know, as much as we don't know, the culture has shaped us, right? We are a product of our own culture, wherever we are. And you know, that's that's the point of view that this person is coming from. So, it's hard. <laughs> it's right. really hard to do, but at least be cognizant of where where um, a person is coming from is helpful. So. I think you said something really important where both of these paradigms, both the individualism and the collectivism, are inside of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about global global theology is when it's done right, we're not looking for new meaning in the Scriptures. We're not saying, well, how does this culture understand the Bible in a different way in which it's never been? We're not in importing meaning into the Scripture. Mm-hmm. Rather, we're admitting that my own cultural paradigm is just that. It's a cultural paradigm. Mm-hmm. And by my own, I mean the Western way, which is the predominant method of interpreting and understanding you know, all things, yep. uh, but the Bible in this particular conversation. Mm-hmm. And so the people who criticize global theology, they go, well, you're just importing meaning. You're, you're creating relativism. And I answer them, no, we're not. You know, both of these ideas, you know, God is big enough uh, to be bigger than all of his creation, to be bigger than all of the cultures that have resulted from his creation. Mm-hmm. And I think he likes the diversity, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, because mm-hmm. I agree with you. We see the individualism and we see the collectivism. I see honor and shame in the Bible and I also see guilt in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so neither of those systems are importing meaning. Um, they're drawing out meaning that was there originally, but because I'm in one cultural paradigm and not the other, I, I, mm-hmm. I can't see it unless I have someone like you or someone else pointing it out to me of going, hey, don't you see this also? Yeah. And so I think that's really key. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things I've appreciated about uh, kind of, you know, Far Eastern under- understands interpretation of, of Christianity and the Gospels. It's really helped expand my understanding of the corporate side of things, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Corporate guilt before God or, you know, the federal headship of Christ, which is, as an American, is very hard to understand yep. or communicate because mm-hmm. we have no concept of this that... Um, in fact, this actually goes into to you know some of the race relation dialogues that are happening right now, uh, and this is I think one of the the lines of demarcation between the two camps is that one camp 
is very collectivist in how they see things. And yep. the other camp is very individualistic. Mm-hmm. And so the camp that's individualistic goes, hey, there's no problem because I haven't done anything. Why are you talking to me about this? Yep. Like, mm-hmm. How is this my problem? Mm-hmm. And the other camp goes, no, 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 you're in some way representative of your group. Yep. Yep. And so mm-hmm. it's important that we all come to this understanding. Yeah. And so these are some of the challenges that come out of this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you see that in, you know, in 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 some of the conflicts that we see today or, you know, the dialogue that is happening today is that the collective versus individual. I mean, again, the, the, the trouble is, you know, getting secular ideas and importing them to to mm-hmm. to, to current, current situations and, you know, thinking that those are biblical ideas is, is, is again, a, is a problem there. But the Bible does speak. We have to go to the Bible. The Bible does speak yeah, on both the individualistic side and the, and the collective side. There's, there's, um, there's ample room for both to exist at the same time. Yeah. yeah. So, Tony, I'm going to close out with this question. Uh, what does the future hold for you? You know, I'm in seminary right now. I'm a student um, at, at Southern Seminary. I have a have a desire to be in missions. I have a desire to to be part of Indian Church in one form or the other. So that desire to be part in in missions or in theological education or you know serving in any capacity, uh, I think that will continue. Lord willing, you know, I, I get the opportunities to do so. So that would be there. Um, at the moment, you know, I have been to India training rural pastors with, with an organization um, a couple of times, you know, you know, and there, there have been other opportunities that have been popping up. Uh, so I think at the very least those things would continue um, in, in theological edu- education arena. Um, but, you know, uh, long term, I, I don't know, uh, but I would, I would not hesitate if the Lord opens an opportunity that I should go back to India or anything along those lines. But again, I'm, I'm open. Um, uh, by God's grace, I have a decent secular career here, which, you know, which is stable at the moment and they seem to want me and need me and uh and i have uh had no troubles on that arena here uh, so that you know that gives me a stable footing at the moment but you know i am open all right tony thanks for coming on the show yeah thanks for having me i enjoyed it thank you for listening to nations reaching nations be sure to follow us on Instagram at Nation Reaching Nation.